Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Miriam J.A. Chansey is the author of What Storm, What Thunder, a novel. Miriam is a Haitian-Canadian-American writer, the HBA chair in the humanities at Scripps College in Claremont, California, and a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books to discuss What Storm, What Thunder. Thank you so much for having me, Zibi. I've been following your podcast, and I love it. I'm really happy. And you're the first podcaster to contact me about what storm what thunder so i really appreciate really uh, your attention to it yeah wow you're the first person to book us so you know i have to jump on the good things i don't know what to say i just you know (laughs) i know a good thing when i see it (laughs) i'm so happy to hear it oh that's awesome i do like the advance notice it's good to you know book anyway whatever 
Delighted. Yeah. <laughs> Delighted that that happened. Would you mind telling listeners what your book is about and what inspired you to write it? Which in this case sure. is fairly obvious, but anyway, keep you tell them. <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm originally from Haiti. I'm from Port-au-Prince and you know, the earthquake of 2010 was really shattering for, you know, people in Port-au-Prince for my family, acquaintances and and colleagues. And I spent several years, so I'm also an academic, I'm a scholar of Caribbean literature and Haitian women's literature specifically. And so I was known for having written on those topics. And so I was booked for a lot of talks about best practices, what would happen to vulnerable communities after the earthquake of 2010, which killed upwards of 250,000 people and left 1.5 million people homeless. And I wasn't planning to write the novel at all. You know, I, I had another novel come out of the UK in 2010, which was about a hurricane season, which had been devastating around 2004. And I really did not have writing a novel on my mind at all, especially because, you know, at that time, we were really just in the process of helping survivors, you know, with, you know, all the material needs that people had, and also grieving, right? And, but every time I gave a talk, people, especially Haitians, you know, who had survived, would come and talk to me about their experience of the earthquake or who they had lost. And, you know, several years later, I was actually in Trinidad, speaking to a Trinidadian painter, Leroy Clark, who unfortunately just passed away a couple of weeks ago, an elderly painter, sort of a national treasure in Trinidad. And he had been painting as a result of the earthquake. He had been moved to continuous series. He had started at the end of a Duvalier regime in 1986. It was a, a large-scale painting he had started but never finished. And then after the earthquake, he started a series. And when I saw his paintings, he was at 77 and he went on to paint, I think, 111 paintings. And he didn't quite know what they meant. And when I came into his studio, I just started weeping. And he said, what do they mean? And I started telling him what I saw. He had never been to Haiti. He had never met Haitian painters. He's not studied Haitian painting, but they really spoke to me about what was happening in Haiti. And so I went home from Trinidad and I just started thinking, what did this mean for me? And the novel just came, an outline for the novel, the characters. And I'm sure that part of the process was just the accumulated knowledge that I had gathered all those years of giving talks, listening to others, my own experiences, you know, going back to Haiti from 2011 forward. It just coalesced into a sort of clear message about what I needed to do. In a sense, it was like people were telling me their stories because I was a writer but I, until I met Leroy, I didn't get the message that, you know, you're a writer, you should do something, you know, on our behalf. And, and that's what I ultimately did. So I started writing in 2013, which was several years after the earthquake. And then it took me several years to, to write it. <laughs> and so were the stories in the book about all the different characters, were any of them real or were they mo based on composites or? No, none of, none of them are real. The only, you know, seed that is that is factual was that I did meet uh, someone who survived the falling of a of a well-known hotel in Haiti, where most of the people who were reported as surviving that hotel were UN and uh, NGO workers. And I had and he the person I met was a person of color, and I had not heard of anyone in the hotel who was of color who was Haitian surviving. And he didn't tell me a lot of information. Just I was there. I survived. It changed my life. And that, when I got to writing, spawned three characters, Sonia, who is a sex worker in the hotel, Dieudonné, who is a fixer, and her best friend, and both of them think of themselves as 
M, which is the categorization for queer in Haiti, and then Leopold, who is trapped in the hotel itself and is Trinidadian. And so that was also my homage to Trinidad and the connection to Trinidad. Did Leopold or Leroy, what, what did you say? It's Leopold. 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 Did he do the, the painting on the cover? No, and he's he's one of the characters, and he's actually no, no, no. I'm uh, sorry. a drug tra- the, the, I'm sorry. The, the actual- oh, you're talking about Leroy. I'm sorry, Leroy. Yeah, Leroy. The painter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Leroy, Leroy, no, I did not ask him for a painting for, for the cover. The cover was designed by Diane Chonette, who's an in-house art director, and she did a wonderful job. She was inspired by a passage in the novel where I talk about the flap of hummingbird wings, the noise of the earthquake. Various people have different ways of talking about that noise. But I talk about the flap of hummingbird wings. And if you've ever had a hummingbird come really, really close, it's just like a, a little bit like a thunderclap. It's really stunning. And so she was inspired by that. And it, and I don't know if, if your listeners would know about this, but James Audubon was actually born in Saint-Domingue. And I'd been re- researching that fact for years. And so she didn't know she she didn't know that when she designed the cover. The cover is taken from images by Audubon's rendition of hummingbirds in Haiti. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so that's all connected. Are you willing to share what your family's experience was in in 2010? Sure. You know, most of the family that I have left in Pueblo Prince is is older, is is elderly. We had one of my father's half-brothers, his mother was crushed in, in the earthquake, passed away in that way. We had some family members who lost homes. They were able to rebuild years later, but there was a lot of material loss in that sense. I was connected to a lot of Haitian women's movements at the time, and all of the leaders of the Haitian women's movement died, <sighs> people like Miriam Merlet, and so women's groups had to rebuild in that time. And then I also had a number of friends who had either students or, you know, colleagues who were in Haiti, but they were trying to track down. And there is a passage in one of the characters sections and section that's actually true to life to what happened to me, which is that I had a friend who was in Puerto Rico was trying to track down a, a student who had supposed to report to the University of Puerto Rico around, you know, after January 12th of 2010 and had not been heard from. And she asked me if I could track him down. And at the time, the only thing that worked were things like Facebook, which I had not been on. And actually a student of mine put me on Facebook and she said, this is how you'll be able to connect. And she was right. I connected to colleagues and writers who were friends of mine who worked at the Université de l'État in Haiti. And I gave them the names that I had, the contact names, the student's name. And the reply I got was, your, you know, your student is alive, but all of your contacts are dead. And, then, and I had five or seven contacts. And so then I had the unfortunate, the, the awful position of having to contact my friend and say, you know, the person you're looking for did survive, but all of your contacts for that person are dead. And, and that was only about three, four weeks in after the earthquake. We're still trying to find out if people were alive, you know, or not. And I I remember at that moment thinking, this is going to be one of the hardest things I'll ever have to go through because I realized so many people were counting on me to make connections and find people. And, and, and from that point on, that was the case that often you would find the person you were looking for, but the people you thought would help you find them had passed away. So it's it's really been, you know, 
it was an arduous time. And, and one of the compelling reasons for me to write the novel is that I realized a few years later that even though I was still very much working on issues in Haiti and, and assisting as much as I could, most people who are not related to Haiti had forgotten what had happened. You know, so when the anniversary would roll around, there were fewer and fewer news reports about it, fewer things going on. And, and, and now, you know, there was just another earthquake on August 14th. And one of the things that has come up are how many people who went through 2010 who are newly traumatized by this event and, you know, everything, com everything coming back up because it is an ongoing kind of healing process. And for me, writing the novel was a healing process. And, and I think just to complete my thought on this, the, to go back to my family, a number of members of my family who were older passed away in the last three to five years, some of whom had been through the earthquake. And one of the things I observed with them is how differently everyone coped with the experience of the earthquake, where I had, you know, some elderly relatives who were right in the epicenter, like we're right in the middle of Port-au-Prince, saw everything, would not talk about the earthquake, their experience of it, but then clearly had a kind of descent after in terms of their coping, their ability to cope. While others, you know, stayed in Haiti, you know, were very implicated they tended to be younger. And so I think that was one of my motivating factor for having an elderly woman, you know, sort of be the, the bookends for the novel, you know, the opening and ending piece, Market Woman, because I wanted to give voice to, you know, to an older person who lives through the earthquake and, and copes as best she can. And, and in her case is able to cope. But I, I know from my lived experience, not everybody is, is able to do that. Wow. It's amazing how an entire nation sort of gets through something and the way they do that and the history and what it means to be one person going through something that is such a collective trauma. I mean, it's not unlike 9-11 exactly. here, except the scale of it is so much yeah. bigger there. I mean, it's like, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard to wrap your mind around that number of losses and, you know, I mean, it's Absolutely. just, it's hard to process, especially when you feel that you're like in charge to some extent or that, you know, that must have been such a, I mean, to have to shoulder that is a lot. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's a very complex, and, and I think what I wanted to try to do in the novel was to give voice to, because one of the things people hear a lot when, when they hear about Haiti is the word resilience. And I wanted to maybe shift that discourse a little bit more towards persistence, mm-hmm. you know, because I think in the word resilience, you have this idea that a group of people, a culture can take anything on, you know, or, you know, as you were mention, mentioning with 9-11, that New Yorkers can soldier on and I think I think that does a disservice to those those you know individuals who may not have the support systems or the coping skills, and that is as valuable and a story to know about. You know that that these traumas are very complex, and though they are talked about as if groups of people you know survive and move on, there's also a kind of way in which. Not everybody can move on. Not everybody should move on. In fact, it should be a kind of integration of what has has happened and a kind of honoring of those people that have been lost. You know, one of the things that has stayed with me is that, you know, I may have known the names of a few people who passed away, but I don't know the name of upwards of 200,000 people. You know, I, I will never know them because especially in Haiti, there are not necessarily roles, you know, uh, people are not necessarily registered in terms of birth certificates, death certificates, and so on. And there are whole family groups that disappeared. And so they they can't be quantified. We don't know who they are. So in some way, in a very small way, you know, in a humble way, I would like to say, you know, taking 10 people, 10 stories, and putting a kind of face, even though a fictional face to them, was a way to kind of stand in for all those thousands of people whose stories will never be told. Yeah. Wow. So this book took you about seven, eight years-ish to write? <laughs> yeah, five years for the for the main writing and then probably another three years of revision as it went through editorial processes. Oh my goodness. So do you have like <laughs> parallel projects? Or are you going to start another one or do you work on a lot of things at the same time or what's your process like? Yeah, I normally work on two books at the same time, an academic book and a creative book. The parallel book for this one has actually already appeared, and it, and, it, and I, most people won't see the parallel. <laughs> it's an academic book. It, it got a Guggenheim, which is, which is lovely, but it was about reading the work of people of African descent through their own lenses and how that might create a different discourse for all of us that is not really race-based, but more about culture. And I use a lot of Haitian concepts to do that, like the laku, the yard, the combit, which is the idea of a collective. But the connection between the two books is actually a film by a Haitian filmmaker, Raoul Peck, who also did a film on the earthquake, on the post-earthquake situation, a documentary, which is called Fatal Assistance. But the film for the academic book was sometimes in April, which is his film on the genocide in Rwanda. And so I was really, you know, taken by the idea that a Haitian filmmaker chose to make a film about what happened in Rwanda. And I started thinking about what's that conversation like? And I, and I had the, the chance to speak to him about the fact that there are some parallels with Haitian history 
in terms of friction between Haitians and Dominicans because we occupy the same island and a massacre that took place in 1937 under Trujillo. And he said, yeah, I hadn't, wasn't thinking about that, but that there is a connection there. And so it's the connection to the novel is that I did, I did spend a little bit of time in Rwanda and visited women's cooperatives there, and it felt a lot like Haiti. And I really could see why he was drawn to that story. And this is why one of the characters then, you'll find her in Rwanda, and I try to make parallels between Haiti and Rwanda in her experience of what people are grieving there at the time that she's there, which is in early 2010. Wow. And having written a bunch of books, including your award-winning academic work and all the rest, what advice do you have for aspiring authors? You know, my, my one big piece of advice, which goes back to when I started publishing at, in Canada, actually, as a, as a teen, short stories and essays, is to work with editors as much as you can. I was very lucky to have a professor as an undergrad who was also an editor who really helped me with my writing and just, you know, told me, send the work out you know, send it out. She taught me how to write a cover letter, you know, and the one big thing she told me is always ask for feedback. She said, you may not get it, but if you have a line in your letter that says feedback is welcome, they will feel compelled to send you something. Mm -hmm. And that's been true nine out of 10 times, even when the feedback has been a little bit rough, which it can be at the beginning, you know, I've I've gotten feedback and I, I find that editors are the most selfless people in terms of giving you feedback on your work because they want the work, especially in literary fiction, they want your work, but it's also true on the academic <laughs> side. They want the work to be the best that it, that it can be. And so I've learned a lot. My editors at HarperCollins Canada and Tin House, Maisie Cochran at Tin House, have been just amazing. And if I didn't listen to them, I would be, my work would be the poorer for it. And what do you like to read? Like, what are some of your favorites or what are you reading now? What am I reading now? So I just read After Parties uh-huh. by So, which I thought was a wonderful collection. Let me see. I'm, of course, reading theory, which is probably not <laughs> what a lot of people are reading. But I like Ashid Mbembe's work. He has a new book called Out of the Dark, which I would recommend. And of course, I'm reading the new book by Jeffers, The, the Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. I just started that. I love so I'm that looking forward. I think it might take me a few months to get through it. <laughs> but it's, it's, it has a great beginning. So I'm looking forward to it being a, a nice winter read. Excellent. Amazing. And just last question on Haiti. Like what, what can people do now? Like what for the, someone who cares and wants to help and, you know, what, what, what can people do? Yeah. Thank you for asking, because I know there's been a bit of controversy around this since uh, the last earthquake and the month before the Haitian president was assassinated. So I know Haiti has been in the news, but just after the last earthquake, there was a lot going on around should people give to Haiti because of mismanagement of funds after the 2010 earthquake. So just a couple of quick things to say about that is that less than 1% of funds went to the Haitian government. So the mismanagement wasn't, you know, on the, it wasn't Haitians who mismanaged those funds. I always say try to give to grassroots organizations that have a longstanding record in Haiti of doing work, of having low overhead and really working with the people, you know, and working with in the sense of finding out what people need on the ground. Haitian-led organizations tend to do a better job because they know what's happening in country. I would say, you know, try to, to find out. Sometimes, you know, you can find out through groups that you're already connected to. 
They might be church groups. They might be community organizations where you live, especially in New York, especially in Miami, Boston, where there are large large Haitian communities. I've been in touch with a number of groups that I was in touch with because of 2010 and before and ask for lists. So one of the key things this time around is that help is really needed in the Southern Peninsula, less so in Port-au-Prince. But there are some organizations in Port-au-Prince like Focal that have units in the Southern Peninsula and are redistributing funds there. I did also collect from those groups, lists of groups that they recommend. And I have a list on my website of Haiti relief funds, so people can also go there. And I always say to people, when you find a group that is something that you're interested in, you know, do the research, find out if they have a transparent plan, find out what their reports are, you know, from past giving and what they've done. Do they have images, you know, reporting back and what have they accomplished? And can you have uh, confidence in them? And if, if, they, if you do, then please, 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 if whatever you can, give because a little bit in a place like Haiti goes, goes really far. So if you know, somebody only has $10 to give, that's amazing. It will do a lot, you know. Good to know. Amazing. Well, Miriam, it was lovely to meet you. My second Haitian <laughs> Miriam in my life now. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. There's so few of us, actually. Uh, yeah. she's a re- It's not a common name. <laughs> she's from Holland originally, oh. but has spent, her family spent, and in fact, they still live there, but Anyway, so I hear, as I've told you, Haiti is is often discussed in our home and, you know, she's there a lot and all the rest. So anyway, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with the thank book. You, and thanks for letting me snag your first spot. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I'll keep listening okay. to the podcast too. Thank you. Please take care. So nice. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 